remember we had an introduction. It was a, a long presentation, but it had to get us there so we could understand the passages that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks. What do you depend on in times of trouble? Where do you find security when things are difficult? Often it is easier for us to trust and turn to ourselves or others because we can see those things, we can manipulate and manage ourselves and others instead of trusting in God who must be trusted in by faith. Of all of the impending dangers that we will face in our lives, the greatest, of course, is the enemy of sin. Last week when we studied Isaiah, we pointed out that there were three major themes of Isaiah, God, sin, and then God's response to sin. God is presented in Isaiah as a magnificent and holy and stupendous, unique, tender God. And yet everyone who has ever existed has been born in sin and our own rebellion and pride is constantly expressed as being contrary to God. And because of that, God must respond. Can you imagine being a worker at a fast food place and you were a diligent, productive worker and then there was a loser who always came in late, burned everybody's order, sipped on people's milkshakes before they handed it out, right? Just was a complete and total loser. And the boss did nothing about that worker. You would say about that boss that they are a weak and ineffective person, yet that's what everybody wants God to do. We want to be people who do our own thing, sip the milkshakes, as it were, rebel against God, basically thrust our fist in his face, live our lives completely without God, and get to the end of our life and think that God is going to be like that boss who just is going to not do anything. Well, we think highly of a person who is an employee at McDonald's. Why do we think that God would be, it's okay. We must exalt in our minds that God must respond to sin, and he responds in one of two ways. He will either judge it or he will forgive it. And if he judges it, then it will be, it will be the condemnation of eternal separation in hell forever. If he forgives it, it must come with the conditions that he puts on it. God will grant forgiveness, but will only grant it based on the conditions that he sets forth, and that is we must repent of our sins and trust him and him alone, surrendering our lives and being completely dependent on him for that forgiveness and blessing. Okay, so we're clear on that so far. Now last week I said we we're going to get to a character in the scripture who would be given the option to depend on God in time of trouble. Here is the statement made to that character. Keep this in your mind. The statement made to that character in the Bible from a prophet of God is this. If you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. Another way of saying that is trust and believe God or you're destined to crumble. Be secure in your faith or you will be completely insecure. So who is this guy? What is the situation? What did he decide and what were the ramifications? And how can this situation be meaningful for me this morning? So that's where we're going to get. But before we get there, we need to delve into the historical setting and study something uh, that most people probably don't think about at Christmas. Now, people like historical movies. People like historical plays. One of the, one of the most popular plays in recent years is this Hamilton play. 
uh, that people are clamoring to get tickets to that. So people like history stuff. People watch the Smithsonian History Channel, uh, air disasters. We like to hear about things that happened in the past because we, we like that. But for some reason, when it comes to the Bible, we feel like that's kind of boring. And this has been excellent. And so I'm going to, I hope this, this is going to feel a little bit like a history class for about 25 minutes. And then the punch at the end is going to be like, oh, that, that, that gets me. That's where, I want, that's where I hope to go. So we're going to talk about something that I'm sure comes up at your Christmas table often, the Syro-Ephraimite conflict. Okay? Nothing says Christmas like the Syro-Ephraimite conflict. Okay? Now, I found an awesome thing uh, this week because, you know, the Kings and the Chronicles and, and Samuel and the Prophets are all, they're, they're not in chronological order in our Bibles. Okay, so the prophets are all kind of towards the end of the Old Testament, after the kings, after the historical books. So you kind of don't know where those guys line up in the history books. So I, I did a little thing. I thought I might have a program on computer. I didn't. So I did a little test, and I found this harmony of the, of the his kings and the, and the prophets. And it's a book from like the 1800s, so it was free on like Google Books. So I'm like flipping these pages and looking like I'm on microphone. And this was super helpful. So I want to walk you through the Syro-Ephraimite conflict Starting with this. Again, it's going to feel a little like history class, but I promise it will be a great application for us. In 930 B.C., a very important date in the, in the history of Israel, the kingdom of Israel was divided into a northern and southern kingdom. There were only three kings in Israel's history that ruled over a united kingdom. Let's pretend we're on jeopardy. Well, who were those three kings? They ruled over a united kingdom. First king was evil, tall. Saul. Second king was man after God's own heart. Third king was his son, Solomon. And it was during Solomon's rule, because of his uh, conflicted heart, and he made all these different uh, treaties and negotiations with other nations, and his heart was divided against God, that God said, the kingdom is going to be divided under your son, and it was. His son Rehoboam in 730 BC saw the, or excuse me, 930 BC saw the kingdom divided. Ten tribes, there were 12 in total, ten tribes were contained in the northern kingdom of Israel, two tribes in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had no godly kings in their history. Important fact to remember, not one of their kings in the northern kingdom was godly. Now our story begins in 752 B.C., the Syro-Ephraimite conflict, and I have to introduce you to five major characters. Okay, five major characters. First one is a guy by the name of Pekah. P-E-K-A-H. Now, in your Bible history, I'm sure you're all familiar with Pekah. Pekah was the 18th king of the northern kingdom. Remember what I just said? How many godly kings were in the northern kingdom? None. So we, know, we already know that Pekah is an ungodly king. And he was the 18th king of the, of the divided northern kingdom, and he was the second to last in other words, the kingdom is about to fall in the north. Look at 2 Kings. We're going to have to look at a few different passages. In 2 Kings chapter 15, it tells us how Pekah became king. In fact, if you look at uh, 23, it's a little confusing. I'm going to explain why in just a minute. This is, these are fun little historical facts. In 23, it says, In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, that's the southern tribe. No, the, the northern kingdom was Israel. The southern was Judah. Now it says Pekahiah. That's not the guy we're talking about. Different guy. Pekahiah was the 17th king. Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned two years. 
and he did what was evil because he's a northern king, and they all did what was evil, okay? He did, not, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. That's a statement that comes up over and over in the kings. The sins of Jeroboam was the fact that he created high places of worship so it would be convenient for people to go so they didn't have to come to Jerusalem and do it the right way. And then they began to worship false gods in those places. Pekahiah didn't stop that. Now in 25, we're introduced to our guy, Pekah. Pekah, the son of Remaliah. Aren't you glad I didn't ask you to read these verses out loud? His captain. So Pekah is a guard or an officer in the army of Pekahiah. And he conspired against Pekahiah. This is, a, this is a coup, a rebellion that is happening. And he took 50 men with him and they struck him down in Samaria. They assassinated him, put him to death, and he reigned in his place. So Pekah only became the 18th king because he assassinated the 17th king. And in fact, some people think that the reason his name is Pekah is because he took the name of Pekahiah. Not only did he steal his throne, he stole his name. Because he thought, if I take a name that's similar to him, I can reign with kind of some validity. He was an evil guy. Second Chronicles 28.6, don't have to turn there, but it says he killed 120,000 men in one day. He was a man of great military power. But he leading this group of 50 men to assassinate Pekahiah, the reason for the assassination is unclear, but it could be that Pekahiah was uh, sympathetic or pro-Assyrian. Okay? The Assyrian was a nation to the north. Assyria was a nation to the north. I just said Assyria, and Siri came up on my phone. Assyria, Assyria was a nation to the north that was an impending, looming threat. It's in modern-day Iraq. So if you know G, uh, geography of Israel at all, you have Judah, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem. Then you have Israel, the northern kingdom. Then up here to Iraq, you have the, the king and threat of Assyria. And Pekahiah was kind of trying to start a little coalition with Assyria. Pekah said, no, 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 we ain't going to do that. And he killed him. 2 Kings 15.28, we just read it, or, or did we get there? 15.28 summarizes Pekah's uh, life saying, he did what was uh, evil in the sight of the Lord, not departing. Yeah, we did just read that. 2 Kings 15, actually verse 24, doing what was evil. Character number one, Pekah, king of the northern tribes. Second character, these names are crazy. Rezin, R-E-Z-I-N. We won't talk about him very long except to say he is the king of Syria. Don't get Syria and Assyria confused. Two different places. Syria's capital city was Damascus, and that is where Rezin or Rezin was the king. He ruled from Damascus. It was also known as the nation of Aram. Third guy. So you have Pekah, the king of the northern tribes of Israel, Rezin, the king of Syria, both evil guys. Third guy, I'm sure a guy that comes up a lot in your conversations. Tiglath-Pileser III. Not to be confused with Tiglath-Pileser II or Tiglath-Pileser I. Tiglath-Pileser III was referenced in the Bible as Pol, P-U-L, in 2 Kings 15, 19, and he's the king of Assyria. So you got Pekah, who's the king of the Israel, uh, Israel, northern tribe. We haven't talked about the king of the southern tribe yet. Then you have Rezin, ruling in Damascus. Then you have this looming threat of Assyria led by Tiglath-Pileser III. Israel and Samaria, Pekah and Rezin, <laughs> Raisin, <laughs> whatever, they developed this idea. Okay, Assyria is a threat. We got to develop a coalition. Let's be buddies. 
the two kings get together, have a little talk. Okay, we agree. We're going to partner together against Assyria, but we still may fall. You know what else we need? We need the southern king, the king of Judah. Let's get him on our side too, and we as three nations will be able to protect ourselves from this nation of Assyria. Now, the king at the time in the south was Jotham, and Jotham refused to join this coalition. Now, we told you that there were some good kings in the southern kingdom. This is referenced to us in 2 Kings 15, 37. Look at that with me, would you? 2 Kings 30, uh, 15, 37. In those days, okay, here it is. In those days, the Lord, so the Lord, remember in Isaiah, is the sovereign of all of history. None of these coalitions, none of these kings are raised up outside of God's sovereign plan. And look what the Lord does. The Lord sends Razan, now you know these guys, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, against Judah. That is the southern tribe. And Jotham died. Jotham died before this coalition could be begun. And so the king who rises up in his place is his son, fourth character we need to know about, Ahaz. Ahaz. Don't get confused because this is, is going to be so wonderful when the conclusion comes. Character number one is Pekah. He's the evil king of Israel. Israel. Then you got Razan, the king of Syria. Then you got Tiglath-Pileser III, king of Assyria, the big threat. Then you have Ahaz, son of Jotham. He's 20 years old when he becomes king. That's astonishing. 20 years old. And he's coming to power in a time of great political trouble. You got all all these wars on the horizon, and what is he going to do? He became king at age 20, and the And his father had passed away, and he reigned for 16 years. And sad to say, look at at what it describes him in chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. So in the 17th year of Pekah, so he'd been king for 17 years, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 16 years. So from age 20 to 36, he was the king of Judah. Here's Here's the explanation of his life, and it gets far worse than this, trust me. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was an evil king, as his father had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. How many kings in Israel were good? None, so he's following with them. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations. There's there's a couple of thoughts of that. The god Molech demanded child sacrifice, but it, it may be that he actually burned them to death but it may be that there was this bronze statue, something I read, bronze statue with arms that were heated up, and you put the child in the arms to see if they, the child would survive. So it may be that they burned to death. It may be that they just were scalded on this bronze. But the whole point is he's offering these childs to these false gods. You know, like, God, false gods, please help us. I'll even offer you my child. It gets worse than that. I mean, this is going to be bad. Um, and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. I'm telling you, it gets worse than that. Then Razan and Pekah came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz. Stop reading right there. So here's the situation. Pekah and Razan couldn't convince Jotham to join their coalition against Tiglath-Pileser, so they come down and they try to convince Ahaz, and they begin to siege him. Ahaz wants no part of this either. And, and so we have him in a trial, in a predicament. And the question is, when these two kings come down to threaten him, where is he going to turn 
for his security. Who or what is he going to trust in? And we probably don't have very high hopes that he's going to do anything well. I said we had five characters. I've introduced you to four. Pika, Raisin, Tiglath, and Ahaz. The fifth character is the hero of the story, Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 7. You've got to keep a finger here because we're going to come back and read the rest of the story. I left you hanging in the history. Now, if you look in that book, which I stated, uh, harmony or you know, chronological order of the kings and Isaiah, or the prophets, Isaiah 7 fits in 2 Kings 16. It also fits in 2 Chronicles 28 for your own understanding. But that, it makes it so helpful. Now we can come to Isaiah 7 and we know the exact position we are in, right? Ahaz is being sieged by these two other kings, join our coalition. In fact, they actually wanted to set up another king, Tabiel, because Ahaz was really a vassal king. A vassal is one who is indebted to another sovereign. He's not even really ruling his own nation. He's doing what the other guy tells him to do. He's basically a puppet king. And it tells us in, in Isaiah 7, now you've got all this historical background, so you're going to read Isaiah 7 with great understanding, right? Look at it. So in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, I've introduced you all those, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razan, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, we're real familiar with those, came up to Jerusalem to wage war on it, but could not mount an attack against it. I just read that for you in 2 Kings 16, remember? So now what is going to happen? The house of David, that is his kingdom, was told this, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the Syro-Ephraimite conflict. Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The king and his people are in utter terror because two nations are coming down to threaten him. God is so good. Verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz. This guy who burned his sons, who worshipped in the high places, set up idols, etc., and does a lot worse than that, we'll show you in a minute, is given an opportunity by the Lord to turn and trust in him. Check this out. Go out and meet Ahaz, Isaiah, the Lord says. Take your son, Shear Jashub, and at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. In other words, Ahaz was out checking the water supply for this siege, and God knew that. God said, go find him there, and this is what I want you to tell him. Say to him, be careful. doesn't mean like what we would say. It's just calm down, be quiet, don't fear, don't let your heart faint. God's saying, hey, this is no big deal. Remember, the Lord was the one who sent these kings. The Lord's in charge of everything. And it says, don't be afraid of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands as the fierce anger of Raisin and the son of Ramalia. That doesn't even mention Pika's name, but that's who he's talking about. It, it, this is very similar to saying, these are a couple of burned out cigarette butts. They're smoldering stumps. They're, what, there's nothing. They're worthless. right? You see cigarette butts on the ground and they're smoldering and they're... they're no one saves those. Just, or God is saying here, these are like smoldering stumps. They are nothing. And he goes on. This, this is so wonderful. Because, this is uh, verse 5, Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you. God knows all this. Tell, you know, let us go up against Judah and, and terrify it. Let us conquer it. And we will set up the son of Tabeel as king. We want a different king, so he'll join our coalition. God says, verse 7, it will not happen. See that? It will not stand. It will not come to pass. These guys are making their big plans. It ain't going to happen, God says. Isn't that great? 
the sovereign God of history, said, this isn't going to happen. It will not come to pass. Keep reading. The head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Raisin. He knows Raisin is the king of Syria residing in Damascus. And within 65 years, Ephraim, that is the northern kingdom, will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. Now you're going to be real familiar with this, verse number 9, the end. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. I've led you to that point, right? Do you feel like you've been led to that point? Do you understand where we've been? Here, here's, here's, here's the situation. Ahaz, this ungodly king, is being given an opportunity by God to trust him and depend on him in a time of great trouble. Isaiah, a prophet, a special prophet, is sent to him, say, don't worry about these two smoldering firebrands. I got it all under control. In fact, the nation of Israel is going to be gone within 65 years, he says. And I'm going to show you that that prediction came true. He says, remember that, uh, that, that I know all these plans and I am the God of history. And he makes great pronouncements against these two kings. This will not come to pass. It will not survive, etc. In fact, when it says... Uh, these, the, the nation will not survive for 65 years. Listen to these dates. This, when, when Isaiah meets with Ahaz, it's about the year 735 B.C. Not less than 12 years later, Assyria is coming in and destroying the northern kingdom. But it is not completely taken over until 670 B.C. when Assyria actually brings their own people to take over and live in that land. 735 to 670 B.C. is 65 years. When you look at the Bible, God says within 65 years. You're supposed to say wow right there. I mean, that, okay, that, that's amazing. That, that's, that's the sovereign God of the universe saying in 65 years those guys are going to be gone and the clock ticks and now 65 years later, people are living in that nation that are from the nation that conquered them. It's over. Isaiah concludes with that statement that I said, will you believe this? Because if you will not be firm in your faith about this, your nation basically will be the same, is what he's saying. Be firm and believe this, or you won't be firm at all. And Ahaz is given an even greater gift. He's given a great gift because the next thing in the passage, Isaiah says, God wants to prove this to you. See it? God wants to prove this to you. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz and said, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. It's like God is saying through Isaiah, do you want proof of this? Ask me anything you want. Let it be the, you can ask anything, as high as the heaven or as deep as Sheol, anything you want, and I'll show you that this, don't you think if you were in that situation as Ahaz, you'd say, all right, um, cupcake right now or you could ask for anything he could ask for any sign right um i want to lose 13 pounds right now lord i mean i just wonder god is god is offering this sign what a gift and ahaz has these armies marching down on him pika and raisin coming to get him and he could have instant god saying I, this will not happen depend on me trust me and i'll even give you a sign to prove it and Ahaz musters all this false piety. We know he's a crook. And you know he says? I do not want to test the Lord. That's what he says in the very next verse, right? I, and, and, but Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. That's false. If you read that and think that, oh, he's, because, remember when Jesus is tested by Satan, Jesus says, do not put your Lord to the test. But the Lord is offering this. This is phony baloney from Ahaz. Because he has no intention on depending on God. 
He wants to depend, just as I started at the beginning, on something that he can see and manipulate and manage. And Isaiah, Isaiah turns from uh, good prophet to bad prophet pretty quickly here. And I want to point something out real, real clear, clearly to you. Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, this is Isaiah speaking again, here then. Okay, so you don't want to test, you don't want to trust. Remember what I just said, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. He proves himself to be not firm in faith because he doesn't ask for the sign of proof. He asks uh, false piety. Then he says, um, Hear then, O house of David, it is too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also. End of verse 13. Now look at what he says in, uh, let me see, look at what he says in verse, oh, come on, verse 11. I want to, sh- you got to see this. Verse 11. Ask a sign of the Lord, next word, your God. Ask a sign of the Lord, do it again, your God. And then Isaiah switches in verse number 13. It is too little for you to weary men that you weary what? My God. See the switch? It's over. His decision sealed his doom. You get that? He says, okay, uh, ask a sign of the Lord your God. He'll give you anything. High as you want, low as you want, whatever you say. I will not put my Lord to the test. And Isaiah says, okay, you don't want to weary my God. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. And everybody's scratching their heads, right? Like, wait a minute here. Because in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew equates this to the promise of Jesus. This is fun. Perhaps the Lord, in a special show of grace, wanted to honor Ahaz and show him himself. Ahaz, with this great opportunity, turns it away. He's offered the world, he's offered God himself, and he turns it away. And this choice was final. Now the prophecy that is given here by Isaiah about the child being born has a dual uh, fulfillment. It has a dual fulfillment. We've got to read a little bit more. Please follow along. Verse, after he makes that statement that is familiar, right? That, we pull that out at Christmas. But now you understand that that promise is part of the Syro-Ephraimite conflict. Okay? And, and it's, it's a devastating time in history. Now look at what it says about this child. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, right? Uh, uh, this is talking about a very young toddler. He can't even figure out what's right or wrong yet. Before that happens, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Raisin's going to be dead like in two years before the child knows how to speak good or evil. The Lord will bring upon you and your people and your father's house such as not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In other words, the king of Assyria is going to come and hurt you, destroy you. The Lord will whistle, verse 18, for the fly. He's going to use Assyria as a way to destroy the nation. Uh, continues all about what all these prophecies are going to happen. Now look in chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Meher, Shalhal, Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jechabiah, to attest for me. And I went, this Isaiah, I went to the prophetess, prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. That's part of the prophecy being fulfilled. Part of that prophecy is being fulfilled in Isaiah's own son, who would, is a sign to Ahaz that God would have been with you. But instead of choosing that, you rejected it. And this child is named Maher. Shale Hashbaz, 
And then it's talking about the prophecy a little bit further there. The message of that young boy's life is this, that God is with us and our enemies are doomed because of that. Okay, that's, we think about that, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. It's partially fulfilled right then and there. When Isaiah has a child, it can't be fully fulfilled because obviously the woman wasn't a virgin, but it's partially fulfilled in that this child is going to be a constant reminder to the people that God is with us and our enemies are doomed. Now, I want you to go back to 2 Kings 16 and be ready for the sad, sad ending here. 2 Kings 16. Ahaz is given a choice and he made it. Now remember, all that up from Isaiah happened between these verses that we just read, right? At that time, this is, this is 16, verse 6. 16, verse 6. At that time, Rezin, Rezin, whatever, the king of Syria recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath where they dwell to this day. Trouble for Ahaz. 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser. That's the third, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking, who are attacking me. See what's happening? Hold your place here. You see what's happening? Isaiah says, I'll give you a sign. Nothing's going to happen with these smoldering stumps. You want a sign? No, I don't want to test God. Gets on the phone. Tiglath, I need you. See what's happened? Tiglath, I'm in trouble. Will you help me? He just had God's offer of help. And he turned to this human king. Gets worse. Verse, uh, verse 8. He took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord. And he sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him and he marched up against Damascus and took it and he killed Razan. And King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser. Thank you so much, king, he's going to say. Worse than that. He saw the altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah, the priest, a model of the altar, something that they used to worship false gods. And Uriah, the priest, verse 11, instead of saying, uh, King, maybe we ought not do that. Build a false altar and bring it back. We shouldn't do that. No, he goes ahead and builds it in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. It's all ready and waiting for him when he gets back. And when the king came from Damascus, he viewed the altar. Are you sad? Are you sad about, I mean, this is, this is so sad. The king drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his burn offering and grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of the peace offering on the altar. And the bronze altar, where that stuff should have been happening, that was set before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house. He cast it aside from the place between the altar and the house of the Lord and put it on the north side of his altar. The king commanded the priest, saying, on the great altar, burn the sacrifices, etc., etc., and throw it on the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. It's almost like he wants to use that bronze altar to be superstitious and call upon the gods there. That's, that seems to be what it's talking about. And the priest did all this. He does more. Verse 17, the king cuts off the frames and removes the basins, and he, he's wrecking the stuff in the, in the temple. He, he brings in a false altar, and 
his, his commitment to Assyria is full and complete. When someone makes a commitment and depends on something for their security, they then owe that person their allegiance. And this covenant that Ahaz made with Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria demanded his complete total commitment. He replicates an altar. He desecrates it. He casts the brazen altar aside, even using it for sorcery, perhaps. And in 2 Chronicles 28-22, which we don't have to necessarily look at, the statement that God made through Isaiah to Ahaz, believe or you'll fail, be, be secure in your faith or you will not be firm at all, he becomes even more faithless to the Lord in verse 22. It's, cr- it's crazy. But according to verse 20, it says, when Tiglath came down, he afflicted him. He did not rescue him. The thing often that you trust in for your dependence eventually is going to turn on you and, and it's not going to solve the problem you intended that it solved. That's the history of the Syro-Ephraimite war. And Ahaz endures a final desecration when he's not even buried with the kings. He's buried outside the city in disgrace. What a failing. That's the history lesson. What do we learn from this? I guess I am just stunned at the wasted opportunity, aren't you? The, I've heard this story before, I'm sure, and probably you have too. But, the, but to be more familiar with it now, it, it astonishes me for, in a couple of ways. First of all, the grace of God. That he extends grace to this guy who's burning his children, who's removing altars, and he says, I, I want to I help you in this, in this war that you're enduring, and I'll, I'll show you, I'll prove it to you any way you want. And instead, he calls up this other king and wants to depend on him instead. I don't trust you, God, I trust this guy because I can see it, I can manage it, I can, I can manipulate it. You, you're far away. And then you think, well, God said he'd show you any proof you wanted. Wasted opportunity. And the prediction of Isaiah 7, 14, where it says, Behold, a virgin will, will conceive and bear a son, predicted, of course, Isaiah's son, but it prefigured the birth of Jesus Christ, as Matthew 1, 16 to 25 say. Matthew saw in this very prophecy of Isaiah not a sign of military deliverance, but of ultimate salvation from sin, because we have a far more hostile coalition coming against us than the Syro-Ephraimite battle. We have sin and death, and they are hot on our trail. And the only way to have deliverance is to turn to God, and the opportunity is given to everyone, but instead we say, no, I'd rather have this security over here, my own good works. No, I'd rather depend on my religion. I'd rather depend on uh, just kind of this Uh, this other thing that I can manage instead of saying, no, my dependence is on God and God alone. And everyone who finds their trust in something other than God ends up just like Ahaz, realizing the thing they trusted him is going to turn on them and fail them in the moment they need. And when they wake up in death and say, all my works will, will present me faultless before the king. They wake up in eternal flame, separated from God forever because they depended on something else. And I'm telling you, it's like I'm Isaiah here today saying, God has given you a sign. But you know what that sign is? The virgin gave birth to a son. 
And he will deliver you from all of your sinful enemies. And if you just depend and trust in him alone, and people say, I do not want to believe that. We false piety or something, just like Ahaz. Sin and death will conquer every one of us. We will all attend each other's funerals. Because of this calamity of sin, but Jesus was born of a virgin to save us, and how can we, presented with this deliverer, look somewhere else for something else? It is if we would be like Ahaz saying, no thanks. Many of us have trusted in Christ, and we need to be reminded of this that I said earlier, that the thing that we depend on for our security demands our ultimate and total allegiance. Remember what Ahaz said to Tiglath-Pileser? This is, this, is, this is, to me, the saddest moment in Ahaz's life because he's a man, what did I say, he was 20 and he reigned, he reigned for 16 years, so he's, 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 he's 36 at most when he, when he dies, so he's a young 30s when he has this opportunity presented to him. And Isaiah says, God will give you any sign you want. And he says, no thanks. And he calls up Tiglath, and remember what he said? I am your servant and your son. You know what he's saying? He's basically saying, Tiglath, blank check Ahaz at the bottom. Fill in whatever you want me to do. I'll do it as long as you rescue me. But people want this from Jesus. People want this from Jesus. They want to they set up their nativity scene and wear their cross, but they do not want to surrender their, their life to Jesus. Becoming a Christian is not remembering that you prayed a prayer. You know, your, your security in your eternal life does not come because the pastor told you one day that you were saved. Your security in knowing that you are eternally saved and forgiven comes from your complete and total devotion to Christ. And you know what that means? It's like, this is my life. Andy, sign the paper, God, whatever you want. Because... He who, finds his, he who wants to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. It's like, God, whatever you want. We, we tend to think that salvation is just believing certain facts, but it's not. It's surrendering our life to Christ. It's saying like Ahaz said to Tiglath, I am your servant and your son. Whatever you say. Why is it? Why is it whatever you say? Because you delivered me from my arch enemy, sin and death, and made the way possible for me to enter into heaven. So what, I mean, so you want me to, you want me to, to do something? Okay, whatever you say, whatever you say. That transformation has to be true in our lives if we've truly known Christ. And so the, it's almost like the point is coming to us. You better be firm in that faith or you will not be firm at all, Isaiah 9. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we are so grateful today for this historical lesson because it is a warning to us about our own uh, need to put our dependence complete and totally in Christ. I know that so many in this room agree with that statement and, and have trusted Christ, and this is a reminder, but it's an important reminder. I think of Peter in the New Testament when he writes his last letter, how he says, I need to remind you of this. I need to, we need to be reminded of this constantly, of the deliverance that Christ provided for us and the sign of his deliverance was that baby. And God is with us. 
when God is with us, our enemies are doomed to fail. And God, we see our enemies maybe as health concerns or financial trouble. Those enemies are nothing compared to the sin that haunts us and, and tempts us and condemns us. Thank you for Jesus who came to solve that sin problem. May each one in this room for the rest of their lives completely depend on that Savior alone to save them from their sins. And may they stand on that and may they submit themselves. May we all, Father, say to you, whatever, we are your servant. We are your sons and daughters. Whatever it is you say, we completely and totally surrender to you because you in your grace and your sovereign plan have saved us. We worship you and thank you so much for the things we've learned today. If there be someone in here today who has not known you, does not understand this, cannot depend on you, or is doing something else other than trusting Christ alone, please, Father, convict them of this sin, and may they turn to Christ today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.